Now, the uh, handout has uh, many points and subpoints, some of which I, I, I hope will be fairly, fairly brief. And the focus of this talk will be on Deuteronomy 29 and 30, but I want to give it a broader context in Deuteronomy uh, as a whole. We saw in chapters 1 to 3 that Deuteronomy opens with, in effect, a recital of a history of past failure. That is, it doesn't, it doesn't just tell us of Israel's great and glorious days, but rather its failure. So the book opens with that negative cloud hanging over it. Israel failed 38 years before when they failed to conquer the land. That's the big dilemma facing Israel now. And, uh, and so there is a negativity, if that's the right word, about Israel. Uh, and because of that, you rebelled and you failed, it's also, there's no sense of they did it, but you can do better, as I said. So there's a sense in which um, this, uh, this drawing of the generations together uh, is indicating the past failure. Uh, we don't have a lot of expectation that's going to change in the future. We hadn't had time to look in uh, chapters 9 and 10, but that's the other section of narrative in the book. Uh, Deuteronomy 9 in particular is a rehearsal of Exodus 32 to 34, the golden calf incident. It uh, summarises it into a shorter section and, uh, and, and emphasises some key themes. Uh, but again, it is a story of failure. It's a terrible sin, the golden calf, and it's not, it's not an exception to the rule. So Deuteronomy 9 verse uh, 7 at the beginning of that story and verses 22 to 24 towards the end of that story Make it clear from the first day that you came out of Egypt until now, you have rebelled against me. Tells the golden calf story. Even at Horeb you did this. That is, even at the very place you, you would not expect sin. I, I think that Israel at Mount Horeb is a bit like a wedding night. Sorry, sweeting. Um, and, um, uh, and, and that is, that's where the covenant is made between God and Israel. It's like a marriage covenant in a way. And what happens? At the very time the ink, so to speak, metaphorically on the tablets of stone is not yet dry or the chisel marks are still fresh on the tablets of stone, down the bottom Israel is committing gross idolatry. And uh, I've used the analogy that you imagine on the wedding night you've gone to your hotel room and you've just gone out of the hotel room to go and collect the marriage certificate from the minister or celebrant or whoever it is and you come back into the marriage room and there's your newly married wife or husband in bed with someone else. I mean, it's an appalling thought, but that's really the seriousness of sin. But then the first verse says, from the day you came out of Egypt till now, you've been sinful, verses 22 to 24, and at all these other places, Kitath Havarat and, and uh, Tabarah and other places, you've also been rebellious. So it's not just a one-off exception, it's a part of a consistent or persistent uh, pattern. So Deuteronomy does seem to shine the spotlight on the sins of Israel. It doesn't shine the spotlight on their great successes, although that may be harder to find anyway. That's looking in the past. When we get to the end of the book, we begin to look to the future. What is the expectation of Deuteronomy for the future? What's it going to happen? In chapter 27... Uh, we get uh, firstly a ceremony to be conducted uh, really at Shechem 
uh, in the centre of the land to mark arrival in the land. I think Shechem is probably chosen because it is at Shechem in Genesis 12 verse 7 that Abram is promised the land and Shechem literally means shoulder and is the town in the middle of or on the shoulder of two hills, one on either side, uh, Mount Ebal in the north and Mount Gerizim in the south, uh, a Mount of Curse, Ebal, Mount of Blessing, Gerizim and a ceremony is conducted there. What's very interesting about the ceremony is that it is on the mountain of curse, Mount Ebal, that the ceremony occurs. Now, I think if you were a choreographer organising a grand liturgical occasion, as I'm sure Presbyterians love, um, sorry, that was tongue-in-cheek, Anglicans love, um, you would do it all in the middle and you'd have people on the mountains and you'd have a great big theatre, it's a few kilometres apart, but not too big, and uh, you'd have a grand occasion. But actually, the altar and the stones and everything happen on, or that sort of part of it happens on Mount Ebal. Why there? On the Mount of Curse. Because at the end of the law, the expectation is, the end of the law, end of chapter 26, the expectation is that Israel will fail. And so simply the ceremony in chapter 27 has tablets of stone on which the whole law is written. And... um, Uh, And that, I think, convicts of sin, one of the uses of the law I mentioned before. But thankfully and secondly, on the same mount of curse is an altar for a sacrifice, a burnt offering to deal with sin. And then following that, another sacrifice in, I think it's uh, 27 verse 7 or something like that, uh, a thanksgiving or fellowship peace sacrifice, the language varies in different translations, That is, the burnt offering is totally consumed, sin's gone, and the next one you eat and have a meal, uh, you're expressing your thankfulness at fellowship with God because sins have gone. All of that ceremony has a negative expectation. That is, having heard all the law recited and preached again, Israel's going to fail. That, I think, is carried out uh, further by the second half of Deuteronomy 27. We're told that on the two mountains, six tribes on each, some are there for the blessing, some for the curse, and they will say some words to which everybody says Amen. What follows, though, are only 12 curses, no blessings in that ceremony. Now, some scholars have argued, oh, well, what's missing? Somehow it's dropped out in history are the corresponding blessings, which would be the converse of the curses which would actually be a nonsense. One of them says, do not, cursed is the person who sets up an idol in secret. I think that might be verse 15, but anyway. Cursed be the person who sets up an idol in secret. Well, imagine if the blessing was blessed is the person who does not set up an idol in secret. Oh, set it up in public. <laughs> I mean, it's nonsense. You see, it, it doesn't work. You, you sort of are led to think they're going to be curses and blessings, but actually it's only curses. Again, I think it's saying... Uh, a couple of things. One is, it's a negative expectation. That is, Israel will fail. Under the law, it will not pass. It will be under curse. Secondly, I think that ceremony is also saying, the second half of chapter 27, at the end of the law, what if you commit a, you break the law and you're not found out? Do you escape it? No, cursed. You see, cursed is the person who does this. There's an element of secrecy in some of those things that are listed. 
and the last of them is cursed be anyone who does who breaks any of these laws. So it's not just for those twelve things; it's for anything in the end. The idea is, I think, that okay, if you murder or do something here, here are the penalties. They're in earlier chapters, but if you're never caught, you're still under curse. God is the ultimate judge, is what it's saying. We come to chapter twenty-eight. Longest chapter in the book, 68 verses. 14 are for blessings, 54 for curses. Now, let me say firstly that 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 imbalance is found in some of the ancient treaties. So it may simply be following an ancient treaty pattern that is more curses than blessings. However, the language of the curses moves from if you disobey to when you disobey, about verse 45 thereabouts. Uh, So, there's a movement from if you obey, these blessings come, if you disobey, these blessings, and when you disobey, it becomes not just simply if this or if that, as though you've got two options and we don't know which one's going to happen, they're equal possibilities sort of thing. No. The weight of the curses and the language as it develops seems to suggest this is the way that it will go into the curse which culminates in exile. The curses, as I mentioned before, of things like droughts and famines and plagues and enemies attacking and defeats in battle and ultimately uh, exile and a whole range of things in the middle of that. That then takes us to chapter 29. But before we jump into it, I want to trace one other theme through because it comes into this chapter 29. I mentioned before that what Deuteronomy expects in the law is not simply external obedience. So it's not about loving your neighbour where you sort of say, shake hands, I don't like this person sort of thing. That's an Anglican greeting of peace probably. But um, <laughs> No, the, the, um, it expects the right attitude from the heart. And we see that in some of the laws explicitly. Love God with all your heart. Be generous and open-handed to the poor. Well, what does being generous mean? Should I give two sing dollars or ten or fifteen? Well, no, it's not actually prescribed. You'd give what is generous. Uh, It's demanding an attitude from here. And there are a number of other laws that make that explicit. But even when it's not there, I think we ought to be reading the laws as expressions of a right heart. That, I think, is meant to be the case. The heart is a key idea in Deuteronomy. The the Hebrew word for heart occurs uh, proportionally more in this book, I think, than any other Old Testament book. Uh, Let me trace a few examples. and I've given you some uh, references listed there to make it simpler to follow. And I'm not going to look them all up. Um, In chapter 1, verse 28... After the spies said it's a good land, the people said our kindred have made our hearts melt with fear. Their heart is not right there in 128. Um, In chapter uh, 439, uh, again, the heart gets mentioned. It's not always in English translations, let me say, by the way. Uh, Acknowledge today and take to heart that the the Lord is God in heaven above and so on. Again, it's something to reside in the heart. This is theological truth here, that God is God in heaven above and so on. But it's to be brought into the heart. Then in chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. When Jesus quotes this, he actually changes it. 
he adds in mind, I think it shows actually uh, what could be called a dynamic equivalence of translation. Uh, What I mean is, Jesus conveys the meaning by changing the words or adding in a word. Uh, Because in Hebrew, heart means not just emotion, but it means the thinking and the will as well. By the time you get to Greek, uh, different ideas. Heart is more like we use in English for emotion and mind here. as though So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, he's actually meaning what was there as simply heart in the Old Testament. So um, he's changing, adding in some words to convey the same meaning. He's not being a literalist uh, in his uh, translation, so to speak. After that great command, the Shema as it is called, that's the Hebrew for hear, O Israel, or the hear bit is Shema. Love God with all your heart. These words of mine must go into you or on your heart. So verse 6, keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. How do you do that? Well, then what follows are a couple of commands in a way about Uh, reciting them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away. Uh, Talk about them um, when you lie down and when you rise. I don't think uh, what we've got here, home and away, lie down and rise, uh, are meant to be sort of only four times you speak. They're opposites put together, meaning everything. So it's to say in every place and every time, home and away, any place, uh, rising and lying down any time. Uh, the only the, the time in English we... I, I've tried to think of an English version of this and um, this idea of two opposites. And sometimes we say, I've lost something. I've searched high and low for it. You don't then say to somebody, we'll search in the middle. <laughs> they mean, I've searched everywhere. Okay? That's what it means here. So any time, any place, uh, recite these words put them on your doorposts and all that sort of stuff in verse eight, uh, verse 8 and 9 and bind them on your hand. And that's why you see some strict Jews with things right around their wrists and often with a little thing around their, their forehead, especially when they're going to synagogue or praying or whatever. Uh, are they doing the right thing? Should we be doing that? There's another law thing to work through the model. Uh, the point is getting the law into the heart. You see, that's, a, that's an external action for an internal purpose. And that's, I think, the connection of verse 6 with verses 7 to 9. The principle is getting the word into your heart. If it helps you get God's word into your heart to wrap it literally around your wrist or around your forehead or recite it, do it. You might look Jewish, but if it helps you, do it. (laughs) Don't think that matters. Uh, What we look like, really, in the end. But you see how important the heart is. See, that's where the word has got to get to. Uh, and that, that the heart being the centre of our being, so to speak, uh, our will, our mind, our emotions and all of that, uh, that's the key organ, in a sense, of receptivity to God's word and God's law. But is it right? It's not right. There are three verses I've listed there, 717, 8.17, 9.4, where in your English translations it may not have the word heart, but it's there, let me assure you. Three times it says, do not say, your translation probably says, do not say to yourself, but literally, do not say in your heart. And then three things. The first one is about fear of the enemy. The second one in chapter 817 is about pride in prosperity in the land. And the third one is about self-righteousness. Three great sins that are so common. 
Fear, pride, self-righteousness. They stem from the heart that is wrong. The indication of those three warnings in successive chapters is warning us that the heart is not right. In fact, chapter 8 deals more with the heart. That's where you get the uh, man shall not live by bread alone and all of that is in the context of a wilderness test that God tests you in the wilderness by hungering you and feeding you with manna so that he knows what is in your heart, chapter 8 verse 3 or 2 or 3. I might have got the wrong verse there. Um, Again, it's the heart. Is the heart right with God? And whilst it's raising the question, we never get the suggestion that it's yet right. And that is made even clearer in chapter 10, verse 16. Because there we get, at the uh, chapter 10, verse 12, is like a summary, in a way, of uh, the basic commands to God. Five things. What does the Lord your God require of you? To fear him, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, and to um, keep the commandments in verses 12 and 13. Five things. Central one is love. They all come from the heart in the end. One of them explicitly there, that is serve the Lord with all your heart and soul. But in chapter 6 it was love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. What needs to happen? Chapter 10 verse 16, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. I wonder if you've done that. Maybe you should do it now. What do you need? A knife? How do you circumcise the foreskin of your heart? What's going on with that sort of odd language? Well, circumcision was given in Genesis 17 to Abraham as a sign of the covenant. Why? It's an odd sign, isn't it? Why didn't God say to Abraham, I want you to tattoo on your forehead a fish symbol? After all, then the women could be part of it and everyone would see why circumcision, which is men only and so private that no one would even know. Well, in chapter 16, the one before, he commits adultery with Hagar to produce a child. Right or wrong thing? Wrong thing. Yes, it may have been an acceptable ancient Near Eastern practice to take your wife's maid and produce a child for your wife from your maid. It doesn't make it right in God's eyes. What's gone wrong? Abram is not trusting God to deliver the promise of a descendant. He's taking it into his own hands, so to speak. So, in a sense, the sign of circumcision is actually also a rebuke. It's a rebuke in a way to say, cut away the pride to be receptive to God. But it's a sign. And what really needs to be circumcised is the heart. That's what it's pointing towards. And it's clear then from the command in chapter 10, verse 16, the implication is your hearts are not right. They're prone to fear, pride, self-righteousness. The word of God is not in them. You're not loving God with all your heart. What's got to happen? Chapter 29, we finally get to. And in chapter 29, verse uh, 4, to this day, the Lord has not given you Literally, a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, it's interesting because they've seen so much and heard so much. Time and again we've been told you've seen what's happened in the past. I mentioned that in chapter 1 before. And they've heard. You heard the voice of God at Sinai. You've heard Moses preach the word. So, what, what does Moses mean here or God mean here when he says... 
to this day you've not been given eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to understand. What's the point of it all? What it's saying is that, that unless God actually works in you, then you can't of your own ability respond aright to God. Oh, you might see with eyes, literally, but not seeing with faith, I suppose, is one way of putting it. In fact, the, the oddity of that is uh, increased because in verse 2 and 3, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, the great trials in verse 3 that your eyes saw. Three times, see or seen or saw, but to this day God's not given you eyes to see. Clearly it's distinguishing between physical sight and what we might call spiritual sight. Seeing the, the spiritual reality in a way that you've brought it into your heart and responded rightly to it. I don't think we should see here three heart, eyes and ears as being in a sense completely separate. I think the idea is that it's slightly rhetorical to use three to describe the whole being. You're not responding to God aright in all of this. To this day, God has not given you. So earlier it said you circumcise your heart. God has not yet given you a heart to understand properly. That's something to come by implication. To this day, not yet. What follows briefly is a covenant renewal. So what in Exodus 24, there was a covenant ceremony at Mount Sinai before they got the instructions to build a tabernacle. Now it's the next generation and they have this covenant renewal ceremony in chapter 29. Uh, another generation later, Joshua will do the same sort of thing. There's a sense in which each generation, it seems, needs to keep coming back to God's word and covenant and respond and so on. But what we then find after this little covenant renewal ceremony where the people don't actually respond verbally to God, uh, interestingly, in verse 17 to the end of, uh, more or less to the end of 29, verse 16 to the end of 29, we see an expectation of failure to come. So, uh, what will happen? Uh, one sinner, uh, it might be a person, it might be a, a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart is already turning away from the Lord. Notice again the heart. And that will be infectious, like an H1N1 flu uh, to spread around the tribes of Israel. They will turn the people away. It's like a root sprouting poison in verse 18. An idea that's picked up in the New Testament as well. And what will happen is that all who hear this, the words of this oath and bless themselves thinking in their hearts, we are safe even though we go our own stubborn ways. Again, the heart is wrong. What will happen is it will bring disaster on the nation. The whole nation will fall in a way. It's, just, it's a bit of... Uh, um, a bit unclear at times whether it's just the guilty who will be punished or the whole nation. But the sense, I think, overall is the whole nation in the end will suffer even if it's one person whose heart is wrong that will spread to others and gradually infect and infest uh, the people of God uh, in a sense with, with unbelief and therefore disobedience. You end up with a sinning nation and the culmination of that at the end of the chapter is exile, the covenant curses of chapter 28 uh, coming into play. Then what's going to happen? We get then to chapter 30 
when all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I've set before you. The timeline of expectation here is that Israel will enter the land. There might be some initial blessing, but then a falling away and curse. That, I think, is what we're meant to read into verse 1. When all these things, blessings and curses, come upon you, uh, then. I think the implication is that they will end up in exile. Chapter 31 to 10, I haven't got time to go into the uh, sort of structure of this in depth or anything like that, uh, but it's actually formed on a, on a pattern like the one I showed you before of the speeches, Moses, Israel, spies, and then you work out again. This is formed also on the same sort of pattern. At the centre of it is 30 verse 6. And, uh, and the subject at the beginning is Israel and at the end, verse 10, and in there it's God and in there it's God. If Israel, having gone through blessings and curses, then turns back to God, God then will turn back to them. And that then works its way out, in a sense, the reverse, but the same logic in the second half of the passage. Okay, I'm sort of summarising this briefly. But it's the middle verse that's the centre point. And, uh, and the middle verse says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him and obey him, in effect. It's the only place in Deuteronomy where love with Israel as the subject, that is to love God, is expressed as what's called an indicative. That is something that is happening. Everywhere else, love is in effect a command. But here, you will love God. Not as a command, but something that's just a statement of what will be. Everywhere else it's a command, except here. Why will Israel love God? Because God will circumcise their hearts. And in a sense, um, though I haven't got time to argue it in full, God's action to Israel will lead to Israel doing that and then God blessing them. That is, God will circumcise their hearts. That will lead Israel to repent and turn to God. What I'm saying is the starting point is not verse 1 where Israel will repent and turn to God, or verses 1 and 2 it might be, but even verse 1 indicates this if you read carefully. When all these things come upon you, the word of God that is, the blessings and curses, then you'll repent. That is, God is actually acting on Israel to draw Israel to repentance and then God himself will bless them and restore them as a in response to that again. That is, the initiative comes with God, not Israel. That's the logic of what's going on there in verses 1 to 10. And we see that embedded in the central section because here, God will circumcise the heart and that means they will love and I think obey might be verse 8. Here, it's if you obey and here it's if you obey. This is what makes them obey. God circumcising the heart. So the logic is God will one day in the future after the exile work on the heart of Israel. In response they will love and obey him and and in fact turn to him and he then will turn back to them 
there's a play on words there, turn for Israel means repent, God will then restore their fortunes, but actually it uses the word turn in, in, in that expression in Hebrew to turn back to them their fortunes or uh, add to them in a sense uh, and, and bless them as he blessed or even better than he blessed Abraham before. At the centre point of that is a changed heart. That's, that's the point and God does it. He commanded them to do it in chapter 10 verse 16 but God gives what he commands in chapter 30 verse 6. The result of that, 30 verse 11 to 14, is that the law, and say verse 14 to be quick and to summarise this, is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. Often that passage is quoted out of context. Often that passage, verses 11 to 14, you know, surely the commandments I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, as though we can do it. It's not very hard. The word's in your mouth, it's in your heart, you can do it. But I think it fails to read that passage, that paragraph, as a result or consequence of 31 to 10. Even though it's got an emphasis on today, there's actually flowing on from 31 to 10. Paul, I think, indicates that when he quotes from this passage in Romans 10. That is, the word that's being spoken of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that comes into our heart by God's grace when he circumcises our heart, when we embrace it with faith. Then the word is not too hard. It's in our mouth and so that we can do it. But unless God does that action, then the word is not actually near and easy in that sense. That is, we are spiritually dead unless God acts in our hearts to make us alive, we could say. I'm, I'm using slightly different language now to, to say what I think is being said here in effect. So, uh, the initiative lies with God and when does this happen? That's what I put under point seven, Christians in the circumcised heart. Is your heart circumcised? One of the difficulties in answering that question is reading carefully again verse six. The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Is your heart circumcised? Well, my heart, I don't love God with all my heart all the time. Maybe my heart's not circumcised. See, what's uh, the danger here is that we, we see ourselves as an Old Testament Israelite in effect. Is our heart circumcised? When is the heart circumcised? The, uh, the New Testament makes clear that if we're a believer in Jesus, then our heart is circumcised. How and when does that happen? The end of Romans 2 tells us that it's a work of the Spirit. So what matters is not physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision. And in Colossians 2, verse 11 to 14, Paul makes it clear that when by faith we identify in Jesus, we die in him, we're buried with him, we rise with him, we are circumcised with his circumcision. So for any believer, whether it's Romans 2 or Colossians 2, our hearts are being circumcised. The dilemma is for us, but I don't love God with all my heart. 
So the, the connection of verse 6 seems broken. How do we explain that? And I'm, I'm drawing this out again to give you a sort of model in a way of thinking about um, these sorts of things. This is a, a model that's not mine, but um, uh, you borrow and beg and steal anything you can from anyone else. The, um, but it helps us think through issues of prophecy as well in the Old Testament. And again, it's a, it's a hermeneutical model that is working how do we get from old to new. Verse 6 says, God will circumcise your heart and you will love God with all your heart. The New Testament tells me my heart's circumcised, but I know that my heart doesn't love God with, all, with everything yet. So the connection seems broken. How do I explain that? Very simply and quickly and basically, the Old Testament looks forward to a day of the Lord where, in a sense, cataclysmically, this, this earth will come to an end and the new era begins. And uh, the day of the Lord will, will bring that in. And we could say that, even though it doesn't say it explicitly, this circumcision of the heart is really a sort of day of the Lord type event in a way. But in the New Testament, we realise that this, this model of the Old Testament actually is right, but we, can, um, we see, a, in a sense, a bit more clarity on the model. What is the day of the Lord? We could say two things. I think the day of the Lord really is one thing and we're in the middle of it, is one way of looking at it. Jesus has come. That's the day of the Lord. I don't mean Bethlehem only. I mean the whole Bethlehem to, to Calvary or Mount of Olives really uh, package. That is Mount of Olives for ascension rather than donkey. Um, that's, that's the package of the day of the Lord, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus is coming again. That's the day of the Lord that we're looking forward to. So, in a sense, the day of the Lord, you could say there are two days of the Lord, and fair enough, in a model, or you could say there's one day of the Lord and we're in the middle of it. But let me add to the diagram then that Jesus will come again. This is the cross, and we live somewhere here. We don't know where. In the middle of that, we might be at this end or that end. I'm praying that we're at this end. Um, My point of the model Things in the Old Testament looking forward to, in effect, the day of the Lord, whether it uses that language or not, we might find a sort of bipolar fulfilment, if you like. That is, some things fulfilled to a degree on the first coming of Jesus and others perhaps on the second coming of Jesus. Our hearts have been circumcised and loving God with all our heart will, is guaranteed, but will actually be, in a sense, effected then. Hopefully, in between, there's actually a trajectory of, of, of increasing uh, the love within our hearts as the work of the Spirit within. But it's not an instantaneous perfection, is what I'm saying. I'm giving you that model partly for just wider use and thinking, but also because I think that's how we, we need to read these sorts of passages. Otherwise, we either doubt our circumcision and then doubt our assurance of belonging to Jesus, or we're, we're trying to claim too much too soon. One of the great dangers in Christians is some try and claim too much too soon. That's sometimes a a, a mistake of the charismatic movement. And some try and claim too little too late, which is perhaps a more liberal trend. Uh, The Bible surely somewhere balanced in the middle of all of that. That then leads to the final paragraph of chapter 30, 
the final choice, the final exhortation. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey, then um, you shall live. Uh, if you don't, you'll die in effect. Um, and then in verse uh, 19, halfway through, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Now, this looks as though it turns it all on its head, as though it all depends on me. Am I going to choose excuse me, the right thing or not? My choice seems to be the bottom line here. But I think that again makes a mistake of reading this a bit out of context. What is to be chosen? Life, good, prosperity, etc. Where are those things found? They are found as the result of a circumcised heart. God will circumcise your heart so that you may love him with all your heart and live. So what does it mean to choose life but to choose that my heart will be circumcised. Well, I don't do it. That is, I'm choosing to rely on God to do it. I'm choosing grace, we might say, or choosing Jesus, I might say. Um, what I'm trying to help you see here is that it's not simply my choice, as though, though Moses is saying, come on, you guys, you can do it, make the right choice, and it'll all be fine. But actually, in a, in a subtle way, he's drawing people to grace life and good and all those language you find earlier in chapter 30 and are all a consequence of or tied up with the circumcised heart. That's the climax of the exhortation of the whole book, the end of it, in fact, of the sermon. Chapter 31 is narrative, basically, and, uh, and uh, about the transition of leadership and the writing down of this word. Hopefully also, final comment, is you see in this description of the circumcised heart here, the, the clear, long-term uh, plan, trajectory of God's purposes and promises. Uh, he anticipates that Israel will... Um, how do I do this? Um, not a model. They'll go into the land. They'll be exiled from the land. But the exile will end with God circumcising their heart. At the end of the Old Testament, they're out of exile, they're back into the land, it doesn't happen. What's gone wrong? The New Testament begins with the words, in effect it begins, with the words of John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah 40, which are words of the end of the exile. Why does he do that then when 538 or more years earlier it ended? Because it didn't end, really. Geographically it ended through the work of Cyrus, the servant of God, Theologically, it ended with the suffering servant of God. And that's why John the Baptist uses those Isaiah words and that matches the expectation and trajectory of Deuteronomy. It expects people to fail unless God acts in their heart. And it expects exile, which happened. And then God eventually in Christ acts in their heart. It matches the promise of Jeremiah 31 of the New Covenant and it matches Ezekiel 36, the promise of a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Different language, same idea, same expectation. Let me stop for a couple of questions and then uh, hand back to Andrew. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. 
But, but in doing that, um, we might say, well, what's the point of that? In commanding them to do something that they could not do, I think what he's doing is exposing their helplessness and their need for God. And that in itself is, is a good thing. I mean, even to command love the Lord your God with all your heart is commanding them to do something that they really cannot do. So one of the functions of the law is to actually point us to the ideal uh, in a way, even if we can't meet the ideal. 